We didn't start the fire. It was always burning since the world's been turning. We didn't light it, but we tried to fight it. Hear all about the fight in the danger zone. Amazing stories, incredible music, terrible singing about military history. I'm Paul. Sit back and relax if you can. If you're driving, don't even think of changing stations. You know how dangerous it is to take your hands off the wheel and your eyes off the road. Gonna take it right from the distance of the years, from all that you see and hear about a man who was growing into something of a legend, the 32nd President of the United States, Franklin Delano Roosevelt, FDR, was one of the great presidents. He was one of the big three leaders of World War II, along with Winston Churchill and Joseph Stalin. It's not easy to get a view out of the ordinary that we always hear about FDR, one that looks at the failings of this man on the world stage, the serious flaws he had that betrayed the high ideals on which the United States of America was founded. But the book by Sean McMeekin, Stalin's War, written with the benefit of access to records of the former Soviet Union that were opened up for many years and now are substantially sealed again. This is a chilling book, showing a side of FDR's character that you won't have heard about before anywhere. It tells you about how FDR helped to make the world safe for communism. The results of his failings, as seen through the perspective of our world today, are disturbing and ongoing. So I'll stop waffling and get down to the bones looking at what happened from 4 March 1933 when FDR was inaugurated as the 32nd President of the United States of America. Perhaps a date that may turn out to be one that will live in infamy. When Franklin Delano Roosevelt became the 32nd President of the United States on 4 March 1933, the world was in turmoil. The Great Depression that had begun in October 1929 was, if anything, getting worse. Japan had invaded Manchuria in 1931. Adolf Hitler came to power in Germany in January of 1933 as the new leader of that country. No one knew what that would mean for the world. Russia was struggling and had been ever since the Bolsheviks had come to power. Communism always impoverishes a country, and Russia was certainly conforming to that model. The new Bolshevik regime was struggling to get international recognition. Perhaps the most important recognition that it wanted, that it needed, was by the United States of America. Republican presidents had occupied the White House before Roosevelt's election, going back to Presidents Harding, Coolidge and Hoover, spanning 1921 to 1933. There were hopes that this Democratic president would break from that Republican tradition. Now, with a socialist president who had swept to office in a landslide, their time might have come. Not that Stalin or communists generally had a high opinion of socialists, including the Democratic Party's socialist ideals. To Stalin, the socialists were worse than the Nazis. In the struggle for Hitler to come to power in Germany, this attitude had been a great help to the Führer. Communists and socialists fought each other more fiercely than they fought the Nazis. Russia had been able to limp along well enough before the Great Depression hit. 
The best thing they had to sell were the works of the giants of the art world and antiquities that had belonged to the Russian royal family and the aristocrats. These were sold illegally, mostly to European and American auction houses. Russia also had gold resources that generated cash for it. At the time of the October Revolution, Russia had the greatest gold reserves in the world, although these would be completely exhausted by the late 1920s. With the Great Depression and the coming to power of the Nazis in Germany, sales of art and antiquities slowed to a dribble, and no one had money to throw around any more on luxuries. Just before the previous President of the United States had left office, he had exposed a massive Russian counterfeiting operation churning out millions of dollars of US currency. Most State Department officials were wary of Russia, not without reason. Robert F. Kelly, the head of the Eastern European Division of the State Department, pointed out to Roosevelt on 27 July 1933, so long as the communist regime continues to carry on in other countries' activities designed to bring about the overthrow of the government and institutions of these countries, the establishment of genuine friendly relations between Russia and those countries is out of the question. Before even thinking about recognising Russia, Kelly argued that the United States must demand the abandonment by Moscow of direction, supervision, control, financing, etc., through every agency utilised for the purpose of communist and other related activities in the United States. Besides that, Kelly pointed out that there were another 600 million reasons not to give diplomatic recognition to the Bolshevik Russians. The communists had repudiated debts Russia owed to the US government and to private lenders and creditors at the time of the October Revolution. American businesses and property had been seized by the communists and without compensation being paid to the owners. Excluding interest, the US government was owed $192 million. Other US businesses and citizens were owed $106 million. The value of American property illegally confiscated by the Bolsheviks was about $336 million. So the Bolsheviks had American claims against them for about $600 million. That's about $60 billion in today's money, plus interest accrued since 1919, 14 years' worth. And Kelly's final point was that the government of the United States has a profound interest in the maintenance of the sanctity of international obligations. Maxim Litvinov, the Russian Foreign Affairs Commissar, when he was talking to Stalin, put the figure of what was owed lower, at around $345 million. But with interest, that still probably came to around $500 million. What the Russians really wanted was to get access to the US bond market for some really massive loans to buy raw materials and manufactured goods. The Americans, who were absolutely in the box seat to make heavy demands on Russia a notoriously brutal regime that the world knew enough about to find repulsive, had to consider if they wanted to give serious international credibility to these people, which would come from the United States recognising them. If Russia got diplomatic recognition from the United States, it would then be able to set up embassies and consulates there, which would give Russia bases for its spies, who would have diplomatic immunity for if and when they were caught.
The Russian agents would engage in heavy subversion of the United States' democracy, as they had done in every other country that had been naive enough to give them diplomatic recognition. That's what the left is all about. Lending money to Russia was clearly a risky business. There was a long history of defaults before the revolution and after the revolution. All in all, Russia had everything to gain from United States diplomatic recognition and nothing to offer America in return for giving it. The advantages to Russia of American recognition were so one-sided in Stalin's favour that Roosevelt could have demanded pretty well anything he wanted and gotten it. So Roosevelt had all of the cards. How was he going to play his overwhelmingly powerful hand? It must have been a nervous comrade Litvinov who went to meet Roosevelt in November 1933 to beg for recognition. He knew that Russia was going to have to pay a lot of money, maybe not every last cent, but still a lot. He had no bargaining chips, not one. He was a beggar throwing himself on the mercy of the American president. Mercy, it should be noted, was not a commodity that any Russian could ever expect from Comrade Chairman Stalin. Okay, so Litvinov knew that the American starting position was $600 million. But how much was Roosevelt actually going to ask for? You'll never guess. He didn't start with $600 million. He didn't ask for the $500 million that Litvinov thought might be Roosevelt's figure. No, he asked for just a measly $150 million, a quarter of the actual debt, leaving off interest. Not only did Roosevelt ask for that paltry sum, but he was apologetic about asking for so much. He gave excuses for why he was asking for so much. That's the smallest sum I think I'll be able to get Congress to agree to. Roosevelt thought that that tiny sum was unreasonable to ask for. Could Roosevelt have been any more naive? Litvinov took the cue from this weak president. He bartered him down to a figure that he said even then he couldn't commit to, a figure of between 75 and 150 million. Then he totally excelled himself and showed some real chutzpah. Just so you know, chutzpah is a Jewish word. I can best demonstrate what it means by giving you an example. A young man murders both his mother and father. He stands trial, but throws himself on the mercy, there's that word again, of the court, pointing out that he's an orphan. That, dear listener, is chutzpah. Litvinov got his people to work out the value of Russian assets seized by the United States in retaliation for the Russian seizures of American assets. Taking a very generous view of that value at $143 million, he said that with interest on that sum, it made the Russian claim $161 million in total. That meant that Russia and America were square. Cheeky little bugger. In the end, Roosevelt agreed to settle the American claims of at the very least $600 million for a paltry $75 million, including all interest. Why was Roosevelt such a sucker for the communists? The answer to that question isn't easy. You'll see that during the rest of his life, in every dealing Roosevelt had with Stalin and his gang, he was conned at every turn. Churchill, who was truly worth his help, got treated fairly shabbily by Roosevelt. 
One of the main factors, they say, that influenced Roosevelt to be so generous in these dealings was the prospect of becoming a major trading partner with Russia, benefiting from some enormous trade deals that he believed would definitely follow a warming of relations. Great Depression-era America was desperately in need of something like that. But what he didn't know was that the Russians were broke. Communism had never been in great financial shape. Communist ideology made sure that was never going to change until the very day that communism finally fell. And so it came to pass that the Americans gave Russia the diplomatic recognition that it was so desperate for on 16 November 1933. All America got in exchange was a vague understanding that Russia would pay off the old debts from the much larger new loan that they were going to be given from the United States. A great way to repay debt. The Americans also got a non-binding promise, which sounds more like the exact opposite of a promise, not to interfere in any manner with US internal politics. After Litvinov left the White House that critical November 1933 day, he went straight to a meeting of the leaders of the Communist Party USA. Smiling broadly, he told the meeting, Well, it is all in the bag. We have it. They wanted us to recognize the old debts that we owed them, and I promised we were going to negotiate. But they did not know we were going to negotiate until doomsday. You can always count on the integrity of a communist. Litvinov then said to the leaders of the Communist Party in America, My pledge not to interfere in U.S. domestic affairs doesn't bind the party, but only the Soviet government. And anyhow, it's a scrap of paper which would soon be forgotten in the realities of Soviet-American relations. Given a green light by Litvinov, the American Communist Party published a statement reaffirming its commitment to revolutionary principles in the New York Times on 19 November 1933. They weren't subtle. Today, there's a lot of talk about the slow march of the left through the institutions, but this looks like a run-through during Roosevelt's regime. Not something just for our present times. And in my next programs, this is going to get a whole lot scarier. The promise of the American Communist Party to pursue the revolution was quickly carried out. With the recognition of Communist Russia, the members of the American Communist Party increased quickly. Between November 1933 and 1938, the members went from 13,000 to over 80,000. Communist agents and members of the Communist Party of America were easily able to infiltrate the rapidly expanding bureaucracy of Roosevelt's New Deal. The American State Department, which looks after American relations with foreign countries, was full of Soviet agents, including Lawrence Duggan, codenamed Frank, Michael Strait, codenamed Nigel, and the infamous Alger Hiss. Hiss was tried in the 1950s for spying for the Soviet Union. The statute of limitations for charges of espionage against him had expired, but he was convicted on lesser charges of perjury. He maintained his innocence to his dying day. After the fall of the Soviet Union and the opening up of its secret archives, it was confirmed that Hiss had been an agent for Communist Russia, but never a member of the Communist Party, a pattern that was going to be repeated often. It was common for sympathetic fellow travellers, useful idiots as Lenin called them, to work for Russia leaking top-secret material to them. 
Al Jahiz is a perfect illustration of this. He started off working in one of Roosevelt's New Deal organisations, the Agricultural Adjustment Administration. He was then promoted to the Senate Committee investigating the munitions industry in 1934, then the office of the Solicitor General between 1934 to 1936, and finally the office of Special Political Affairs between 1936 and 1947, where he had access to classified material relating to U.S. military strategy, and he wielded a lot of influence over American policy. Another even higher Soviet asset, although again never a card-carrying member of the American Communist Party, was Harry Dexter White. He was a Harvard-educated economist who went to work for the U.S. Treasury Department in 1934, ending up as the right-hand man of Henry Morgenthau, Roosevelt's powerful Secretary of Treasury. What he got up to, you won't believe, but that's for another program. By the end of the 1930s, there were hundreds of paid Soviet agents working inside the US government, either 221 according to Soviet records, or more likely 329 according to scans of telegrams sent to or received by various Soviet spy organisations. An American aeronautical engineer complained that the Russians had agents in practically all American aviation factories. High-level Russian agents like Al Jahirs and Harry White were able to shape American policies that affected Russia, from technology transfers to bilateral trade to U.S. relations with Japan, a scary topic which I'll talk about in another program. One of the top handlers of Soviet spies in America reported to Russia, they have agents at the very center of government influencing policy. The Soviet embassy in Washington, there, thanks to Roosevelt's recognition of the Russian government, was a critical asset for Stalin as he was able to masterfully manipulate most governments in the world, including the United States and Great Britain. Don't get me wrong, the American civil service had some outstanding people who saw Stalin and his regime for the brutal monsters that they were. Typically, socialists seem never to be able to see the evil that comes from their own side, but good conservative people, well-informed, can see and speak the truth. One of the outstanding figures like this that Roosevelt had to advise him on how to deal with Stalin and his regime included the first American ambassador to Moscow after the recognition of Russia. That was William Bullitt. Bullitt quickly became critical of Stalin's murderous regime. In 1935, Stalin officially ended the policy that had been introduced at the third Comintern that had put into place in 1990 to set up communist cells in Western countries to work towards subverting them with a view to their overthrow by communist regimes. This is something still happening in the West today with considerably more success with the new left up to just after the end of World War II. Comintern was replaced in 1935 by the Popular Front, which was supposedly an anti-fascist body, but not really. It didn't lose its Comintern subversive goals, except when speaking in public. Roosevelt desperately wanted to believe that the bad days of Comintern were now gone. Bullet wasn't swallowing the communist lies. In July 1935, he reported, Contrary to the comforting belief which the French now cherish, it is my conviction that there has been no decrease in the determination of the Soviet government to produce world revolution. Bullet said why that was his view. 
every single Soviet and Comintern official I have spoken to has expressed his belief in the necessity of world revolution. For this reason, Stalin's diplomatic overtures towards friendly states, such as in the current instance, France, are merely tactical policy akin to armistice relations, a temporary ceasefire in the battle between communism and capitalism. As for the prospect of a new European war, I don't doubt that current Soviet policy is peaceful, but this is only because Stalin has not yet completed his armament drive. It is the primary object of the Soviet Foreign Office to maintain peace until the strength of the Soviet Union has been built up to such a point that it is entirely impregnable to attack and ready, should Stalin so desire, to intervene abroad. Bullet also warned, It is the heartiest hope of the Soviet government that the United States will become involved in a war with Japan. Bullet's views were right on the money, but they were not what Roosevelt wanted to hear. This led to Roosevelt having Bullet replaced as the American ambassador to Moscow by someone who was willfully blind to the realities of communist Russia. Roosevelt replaced Bullet in November 1936 with Joseph Davies. Davies abruptly ended the stream of criticisms of Stalin's policy that came from Bullet. Maybe that happened because Davies was a communist sympathiser. Maybe it happened because his wife, Marjorie Merriweather Post, the Kellogg's heiress, was given favoured access by Stalin to buy looted artworks at amazingly discounted prices. The artworks she acquired can still be seen on display at the Hillwood Museum in Washington, D.C. Whatever the motive of Joseph Davies, he certainly dealt with Stalin and his superiors in Washington, taking the most unrealistically kindly views of Stalin's murderous regime. In a meeting Davies had with Stalin in June 1938, he told him, You are a greater leader than Catherine the Great, than Peter the Great, a greater leader even than Lenin. I know you are a man of peace. Davies volunteered to Stalin to share sensitive intelligence about American naval deployment in the Pacific. He invited Stalin to intervene in U.S. politics. Davies warned that although Roosevelt was favorably disposed toward him and the Soviet Union more generally, the president was surrounded by reactionary elements in Washington who Davies told Stalin he hoped would soon be sidelined. What happened next in the American State Department beggars belief. But that's for my next program. Thanks for joining me, Paul, in the Danger Zone. If you have any questions about anything in this program, maybe you could catch up with me for my guided tour at the Australian Armour and Artillery Museum on Saturday mornings, starting at 10.30am. Probably the world's best guided tour of an armour and artillery museum, borrowing the Danish Carlsberg slogan for their beer. If you liked this program, you'll definitely love my other program, curiously named C-Y-K-I-A-E. Even I don't know what it's all about, but if you listen in, you might get a clue.